After the excitement of exploring the desert and taking part in his very own war, Abram begins to take his life at a much slower pace. Whilst he is still in contact with his god, he does not find himself requiring the heroics displayed when saving Lot from the invading kings. Instead, we see Abram become more concerned with the more domestic aspects of life as he begins to consider his own heirs, or the lack of in this case. We learn in Genesis 15, titled The Lord's Covenant with Abram, that Abram is dismayed that he does not have a son of his own, and that when he dies, his estate will be inherited by Eliza of Damascus, no more than a mere servant in his household. But we learn from the Bible that this would not be the case, and that Abram, despite being in his 80s by this point of the story, would indeed have a child. We are told in Genesis 15:4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So God is pretty confident that Abram will indeed have a child, and if we look at the metaphor God uses by telling Abram to count the stars, it would imply that Abram would have many children, or grandchildren that is, and that his lineage would be great and many. Whilst Abram is content to accept God's words, on the account that God hadn't let him down thus far, there would perhaps have been some doubt in Abram's mind, especially when you consider that his wife Sarai was long past the age of conceiving. Sarai was well aware of this as well, and like Abram, she too desired a child and a family of her own. So desperate to achieve this goal, Sarai offers up one of her own slaves for Abram to impregnate. The Bible tells us, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Whilst it cannot be confirmed, it is believed that Hagar was a slave earned by Sarai from Pharaoh during their stay in Egypt. So when Abram swindled the king out of resources in exchange for his wife, it is thought that Hagar was amongst those resources. Of course, Hagar has no choice in the matter, and so she obeys Sarai's commands and sleeps with Abram, getting herself pregnant. Going by her words, Sarai herself does sound pretty bitter. She declares that the Lord has kept her from having children, a sentence that sounds almost accusatory. Like her being unable to conceive is entirely God's fault, which arguably it is. There is pain in Sarai's words as she says these words, perhaps even frustration at having her prayers go unanswered. We can tell she longs for a family and a child of her own, arguably more than Abram does, and yet she is kept away from such a reality through no fault of her own. It is in an acrimonious tone that she tells Hagar to go and sleep with Abram, and that she takes absolutely no joy in this endeavour, but rather sees it as a heartbreaking and yet necessary choice in order to get what she wants. She states that perhaps she can build a family through Hagar, almost like Hagar is a bridge that will enable her to obtain that which she desires. It also shows us how much nerve Sarai has, that she will allow another woman to sleep with her husband just so that she can have the family that she always wanted. To Sarai, she compromises on the idea of having her own child, and settles for having the child of another woman, so long as she will be recognised as its mother. Abram, as you can imagine, agreed to these terms, 
the Bible tells us that yes, he does sleep with Hagar, and she does indeed conceive a child. It's hard to find fault in Hagar's character either, given that she is a slave, and is just doing what her mistress had told her to. It's arguable that Hagar never even wanted a child in the first place, least of all the child of an 85-year-old Abram. You might argue that Abram and Sarai are the true sinners of this chapter, given that Abram willingly lies with Hagar, and thus breaking the sanctity of marriage, but that Sarai orchestrates the conditions for this to take place. Sarai also demonstrates a lack of faith in God's message to Abram. Despite God telling Abram that he would have many children, Sarai does not for a minute think that she could possibly be their mother, which given her age, is pretty understandable. Believers see the moral of this scenario as always putting your faith in God, even when it seems impossible. Sarai could have done this, but in this instance, she was faithless, and so she took matters into her own hands and sullied the essence of her own marriage. As we know, infidelity is a big sin and a defiling of the concept of marriage. It negates the premise that man and woman come together in one flesh, and that there should be no room for one like Hagar. Abram, on the other hand, should have turned down the offer, having known that by sleeping with Hagar, he would be breaching one of the fundamentals of God when it came to marriage. Instead of rejecting Sarai's offer and deciding to either forego children altogether and perhaps even wait for a miracle from God, he jumps at the opportunity to sleep with a far younger woman. I suppose you can argue that Abram didn't enjoy sleeping with Hagar and only did so out of a pragmatic approach to make his wife happy. But yeah, right? Hagar of course became pregnant and on the one hand, while she may have been unconvinced about being forced to have a child with Abram, there is an argument that in a culture that viewed childbearing with such value, especially to a wealthy and influential man like Abram, Hagar would have been bestowed a higher status, and considered blessed. Perhaps even more so than Sarai, given her inability to conceive. Naturally, you can only imagine that Sarai was pretty salty over the whole thing. Not only was Hagar, a mere slave, now considered more blessed than she was, but also the failure to produce a child was evidently not Abram's, but her own. This made Hagar, according to Sarai, turn her nose up at her mistress, and even come to despise her. After all, she was carrying the hallowed child of Abram. What was Sarai carrying, if not envy? Whilst the Bible does not specify whether Hagar demonstrated haughtiness now that she carried Abram's child, it is possible that there was contempt towards Sarai for having been her slave. It wouldn't be totally inconceivable that Hagar did rub Sarai's face in it and used her pregnancy as a way to demean Sarai and re-establish herself from beneath her mistress to above her. Sarai cannot even begin to control her emotions. She even starts to blame Abram for her misery, saying, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. It's probably one of the few times that Abram is actually faultless, given that he was only doing as his wife asked him. Sarai seeks to throw all responsibility at Abram for what has happened, but Abram pretty much just shrugs his shoulders and tells her to do what she thinks is best. He shows little regard for the child grown within Hagar, and you might say he seeks to put his relationship with Sarai first, as he attempts to remain indifferent. But we learn that Sarai begins to mistreat Hagar. The Bible doesn't tell us what Sarai does, 
but it is bad enough that Hagar flees into the wilderness of the desert. But it is here in the desert, near a spring, that Hagar runs into an angel of the Lord. The angel speaks to her, saying, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? Hagar confides in the angel, telling him that Sarai had mistreated her, and that she was fleeing from her. But the angel does not have much in the way of pity for her, as he simply tells her to return to Sarai and submit to her. However, he does offer some consolation, in that he will increase Hagar's descendants, and that there will be so many of them, that they will be too numerous to count. You might say that his question to Hagar is rather insightful. Where have you come from, and where are you going? It is such a question that not only believers can benefit from asking themselves, and that it also allows one to consider all of their options. In Hagar's case, she considered the place she came from as a horrible place, whilst the place that she was going to was in fact nowhere. There is a sense of hopelessness in Hagar's case, for she has traded a burdensome environment for an uncertain and arguably bleaker one in the form of the desert. But the angel, despite coming across as impassive, essentially tells her that he has a plan for her. By telling her to return to Sarai, he's asking her to repent, and that if she's able to swallow her pride and face her problem instead of running away from it, then there would be a reward at hand, the reward of having many descendants. By obeying the angel and reaping the rewards he promised, there is also the promise of safety, and that despite heading back to an abusive household, the angel would protect her. The angel also tells her to name the child born of Abram, Ishmael, and that the Lord had heard of Hagar's misery. Hagar is struck by the angel's words, and her faith in God is reaffirmed. She refers to him as the God who sees me, and perhaps this is why she is so willing to return to Sarai's company. For if God was with her out in the desert and giving her strength, then surely he would be with her when she was with Sarai too. So Hagar does indeed return to Sarai, and she does give birth to Abram's son, who she names Ishmael, as the angel instructed. Some find the moral of this story to be one of not only resilience, but also the importance of acquiescing in certain circumstances. You'll notice that Hagar is pretty resilient, in that she tolerates such abuse from Sarai in the first place, and even has the strength to walk away from the comforts of civilization and chooses the desert instead. Despite not making much headway in the vastness of the plains, she was definitely serious about doing so, otherwise, why would God have sent an angel to her in the first place? Evidently, God recognised how determined Hagar was to get out of Sarai's employ, as the angel stated, he recognised her misery. But he also must have recognised that there was a better fate for her, if she suffered just a little bit longer. In this, Hagar's acquiescence shows us that sometimes we need to take a step backwards before we can take a step forwards, and that sometimes, running from difficult circumstances is not the answer. Some might say that God asking Hagar to return to Sarai, however, is almost like an advocation of abuse. He tells her to pretty much endure it, because on the other side of it, there would be glory. And this is great for Hagar, who comes to believe in God's words and understands them as absolute truths. She sees the endurance of a few more months of abuse to be withstandable and worth it for the payoff the angel promises. But whilst I understand the sentiment behind the story, I think it's unfair and somewhat sadistic to send Hagar back to an abusive situation, even if the promise of protection was implied. 
Considering that Hagar later gets kicked out into the desert anyway by Sarai, and that Ishmael gets kicked out with her, I can't help but think that Hagar probably should have just ignored the angel and kept walking until she got back to Egypt. But some would say deliberately ignoring an angel was the same as ignoring God, and therefore a sin, which would see Hagar incur an even worse punishment. By Genesis 21, we understand that Sarai eventually gets the precious son she always wanted by giving birth to Isaac. In celebration, a great feast is thrown by Abram, and the entire state reveled in jubilation. Well, everyone except a resentful Sarai. Now, you'd expect her to be happy, right? After waiting some odd 80 years for a kid of her own, and after producing a literal miracle out of her uterus, she still has it in for Hagar. Years have passed since the, well, dare I say, entanglement, but Sarai is stuck on it as she scornfully watches Ishmael. The Bible tells us that she observed Ishmael mocking the baby Isaac, and that she said to Abram, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. You're kind of mad, right? Whilst Ishmael was Hagar's biological son, the whole purpose of her carrying the child in the first place was that Sarai could be his mother. But while Sarai was so keen on obtaining a son, we never actually see her act in a nurturing way towards Ishmael when he is born. In fact, the Bible does not seem to detail an account where Sarai even interacts with Ishmael. The implication here is that either Sarai took Ishmael and raised him to be her own, or more likely, that she had gone off the whole idea by the time he was born, and that when he was born, she shunned him for not being hers. This is why she is so quick to tell Abram to get rid of that slave woman and her son. Notice she can't even refer to Ishmael by his name, and labels him as Hagar's son and not hers. She says again, that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Here, she not only comes across as territorial against Hagar and Ishmael, but adversarially too. It's no exaggeration to say that she loathes Hagar and Ishmael to the point that she can't even, or won't even, use their names. Once more, Abram shows more sense, or at least compassion, than Sarai does. He recognises Ishmael as his son, and does not wish to send him away. But God interferes and tells him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So here, Abram gets the green light from the boss upstairs that sending Ishmael and Hagar away is for the best, and that he will indeed take care of them. Unfortunately, Ishmael is dropped like a bad habit, and there is an implication here by God that it actually doesn't matter, because Isaac, a child born in wedlock, is now here, and thus, the illegitimate Ishmael and his slave mother are now irrelevant. Still, Abram is shown to give Hagar and Ishmael some food and water for their journey, and you might say that this was a representation of his heavy heart. He gave them some provisions to survive, but didn't exactly go out of his way for them either. Considering how wealthy he was, he could have given them an escort, or some mode of transportation even, so that they could reach a safe destination. But no, Abram does the absolute bare minimum, probably under the watchful eye of his wife, and Hagar and Ishmael never return again. 
Instead, the Bible tells us that both mother and son wandered the desert in Bathsheba. Of course, wandering in the desert hoping to find sanctuary was a bit of a gamble, and much like the first time that Hagar had tried this, she doesn't have much luck. The food and water didn't last very long, and pretty soon, Hagar had all but given up. She placed Ishmael under a bush, and turned away from him, for she could not bring herself to watch him die. In desperation, all she could do was sob. But God, in his infinite mercy, as the Bible tells us, that after hearing Ishmael crying, God takes pity on the mother and son, and sends down the same angel from before. The angel asks, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Here we see that the angel, or the angel on behalf of God, lives up to his previous promise, in that he would see Hagar and her son to safety. Admittedly, the assistance came about in a roundabout way, but it must be said that God did stay true to his promise, and does proceed to deliver Hagar in her moment of need. He provides her with a well of water which appears in the desert, and from this well, Hagar is able to feed Ishmael and survive. Believers may look at this as God giving his people hardship so as to either test them or improve them, and that God will only give as much as a person can bear. In Hagar's case, it could be argued that she could endure Sarai's abuse, and so God did not intervene. But when facing death in the middle of the desert, God saved her, because this was not only outside of Hagar's control, but also not something that she could do alone. Put simply, believers would argue that there is no challenge that one cannot overcome if they put their trust in God, and that God will not let them down, even if it seems like he is at times. We are told in the very final moments of Hagar's chapter that God was with Ishmael as he grew up, and that whilst in the desert, he became an archer. There's also an idea here that Hagar and Ishmael literally did live in the desert, or at least in some small settlement. But because of God, they were able to live full lives, despite having very little. We are even told that Ishmael did actually end up with something of a happy ending, considering that his mother hooks him up with a wife in Egypt, and amongst having many sons, lives a long life up until the age of 137. Whilst it is assumed that Hagar lives an equally satisfied life, her fate beyond fetching Ishmael a wife is not actually detailed and remains largely unknown. As always guys, if you've enjoyed today's video, then don't forget to give this video a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe for more content just like this. Until next time.